0: Hello and welcome to the Air Force Judge Advocate General School podcast. Today we're talking about great power competition, a term generally used for the United States' current posture as it relates to China and Russia. The specter is one of three predominant players competing to protect and or expand their respective spheres of influence over the globe. Today we launch our first podcast in a series of episodes that will introduce, define, and explore this phenomenon. We'll talk about how it started, where it is, and where it looks like it's headed. And we'll talk about why it matters. We've assembled experts from various fields to help us understand our competitors better, to help us understand our history better, and in turn, to help us understand our role that much better. Today, a primer on China with Lt. Col. Charles Gartland. Currently the Law Chair Director for Air University here at Maxwell Air Force Base, Lt. Col. Gartland has been studying and writing about China for several years, and he agreed to bring his considerable understanding of that competitor to bear to kick off this series. Here's episode 57. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Air Force JAG School podcast. Today, we are talking again with Lieutenant Colonel Charles Gartland, but today we are actually not reviewing a book. We're going to be talking about China. Uh, This is definitely a topic that we in the DoD are talking about a lot more recently. I think recently, General Brown basically said, hey, if it's not about China, we're not talking about it. Uh, So... With that in mind, we thought that maybe everyone could use a little bit of a primer and a little bit of background on exactly what is going on with China and about the current state of affairs and Colonel Gartland. Uh, has agreed to sit down and talk with us about that. So, sir, how did you get involved in this area of research?
2: All right. Well, hey, uh, Aaron, thanks uh, for having me again. And it is a bit different here to not be talking about mutinies. Yes. uh, In fictional literature or Lincoln on Leadership, our other two podcasts out there. Don't forget to take a look at those uh, audience. How did I get interested in China? So when I arrived here coming off a deployment in September 2017, uh, as the Air University Law Chair. I started to take a look at the curriculum uh, around the circle, as we say, for those of you who've been out here at Maxwell, were arranged in a one-mile circumference circle here at Maxwell Air Force Base. Uh, so I started to take some, some trips throughout the circle to see what they were studying, and not surprisingly, because I got a bit of a, bit of a taste uh, from doing Air War College by correspondence, great power competition, uh, nation-state rivalry uh, studies, such as the, the threat from China, threat from uh, from Russia, uh, Iran, uh, f- North Korea. Uh, that was really the focus of attention over there. So, when I arrived in the position here as the law chair, since my job was to essentially liaise uh, with all of the schools around the circle, I figured it would be a good occasion to, to get spun up on all of the curriculum, uh, which is the focus of studies over there.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, So, it's the focus, you know, at Air War College and around the circle at AU. Uh, why? So why are we talking so much now about China?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Aaron, and, uh, and, and it's something that a bunch of people have uh, – uh, it's a question quite a few people have posed to me. Because uh, you really have to – if you look over the last 25 years or so, uh, U.S. military operations. All of the focus, of course, has been on, on COIN, on counterinsurgency, uh, primarily operations out in CENTCOM. So we're talking about uh, Islamic militancy, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, uh, other violent extremist uh, organizations. And that's where our focus has been. That was the in fact I lived it. That was, the, that was essentially the subject of my deployment when I was with Operation Inherent Resolve. So the focus has been so much uh, on uh, counter-terror, counter-insurgency operations, that this came as a bit of a jolt to a lot of people when it seemed all of a sudden there was this focus on China. So uh, to answer your question, why is that? So I think I can, I can point to two different, two different rationales in, in, in two different sources. So the first... Uh, particularly for a military audience, I'd point to the documents out there, and then number two, I'm gonna take a look at maybe the the underlying reason for why this is showing up in the documents. So if you go back to the Obama administration, 2015, uh, President Obama was making a, a speech uh, I, don't, I don't recall the, f- uh, the form, I think he may have been in Australia at the time, what the, what, what the subject was uh, for that particular talk, but he, he used a phrase, and the phrase was pivot to Asia, and, and that's a phrase that, that might resonate with some in our audience, and essentially what President Obama was getting at at the time uh, is that we need to start refocusing our efforts, our strategic efforts, uh, not, just, not just from a military standpoint, that, that, that being one of the that being one of the considerations, but to uh, invoke uh, uh, an Air War College term, all of the dime, uh, and I think you probably come across that in ACSE as well, diplomatic, informational, military, political, economic, so all of the other uh, instruments of power, we need to pivot over to Asia and put more of an emphasis over there. And that showed up, um, that was reflected in uh, one of President Obama's national security strategy documents. And then when the Trump administration came in, uh, with his national security strategy in 2017 that was really the he picked he picked up and accelerated on that decision from the Obama administration and then really honed in on great power competition uh, and there was a that was really a seminal moment in American foreign policy because up until that point as I said uh, for the last two decades or so the focus had been on counterinsurgency but number two it completely re engineered the approach to China. Because up until that point in time, uh, in American diplomacy, particularly uh, beginning with the accession uh, of China into the World Trade Organization in the early 2000s, I think it was 2000. 2001. The idea was that China would be coaxed into the community of nations through diplomatic engagement and primarily through economic engagement, so through trade, through international free markets. The more we trade with China, uh, the more that China will be able to bankroll infrastructural development, create a middle class and as the middle class begins to burgeon burgeon in a a country obviously as populous as China, over a billion people, uh, then that in turn will create uh, internal pressures for democracy and the net result over time will be that China will uh, join the international order of democratic democratic free market uh, economies uh, and participate in the international free trade order. The 2017 National Security Strategy basically pronounces death uh, to that particular approach with China and declares that it hasn't worked. Uh, We thought we would bring China into the fold uh, of peaceful nations, and this hasn't worked at all. Instead, what it's done uh, is enriched an authoritarian regime that is now going to challenge us on a global scale. So the Trump NSS completely reverses course uh, on our approach to China and then following from that, and I'll move into the second basis here, following along from that, you have, aside from the uh, 2017 NSS, you then have the National Defense Strategy that came on the heels of that, there was then an Indo-Pacific strategy, and for the first time, as far as I know, a ch- uh, strategy directed specifically at China, uh, which really hadn't come up uh, from kind of from a from a military or strategic standpoint with previous administrations. So, just those uh, pronouncements from the executive level, as reflected in those documents, in and of itself, that definitely prompted. Uh, both in professional military education and in the intellectual communities that engage in this sort of talk those documentary changes just started to prompt a change in in the narrative, a change in the topic of discussion. Um, I think it's important to note though, moving on to point two, is that what those documents are reflecting is also real changes in the geopolitical order that had been taking place over the previous two decades. And note that it's taking, those changes are taking place over two decades where the United States has its focus, as I mentioned before, in a completely different part of the world, um, over in the Middle East. So while our attention is over there, in the meantime, uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party uh, is, through its, through its centralized power uh, within the country, is meticulously directing efforts uh, in order to try and expand their influence and expand their power, uh, ultimately culminating with their first military installation abroad. And as far as I know, at least open source Uh, The only installation so far uh, that the People's Republic of China has actually constructed outside of China or outside of their immediate zone of influence is uh, out in the Horn of Africa, Djibouti. so uh, very close, of course, to American operations uh, in that particular in that particular theater of the world. Um, so China's economic power uh, is growing. Uh, they start to undertake the One Belt, One Road Initiative, also called um, the Belt, just referred to as the Belt and Road Initiative, or the BRI. I think it's kind of the most common phrase that you hear from it now. Uh, and they're starting to gain stature. They're starting to cut uh, bilateral agreements under the Belt and Road Initiative with many countries. It really began as Uh, this is one of uh, Chairman Xi, and we'll be talking about Chairman Xi or President Xi, um, uh, the current premier of China. We'll talk about him later on, but really his signature initiative has been the Belt and Road Initiative, which he kicked off when he came in, uh, or shortly after he he came into power in 2012, and the idea was to essentially start with third-world countries, uh, cut uh, economic development deals with them, so it could be anything from roads, infrastructure projects, port developments, um, all sorts of different construction projects, cut deals with them uh, that would, number one, uh, provide a diplomatic basis for further exchange with China in the future, and also give them an economic anchor uh, in different parts of the world, and, uh, concomitant with that, an actual foothold in some cases, so an actual physical footprint Present and that's uh, presence, excuse me, and that's actually how that uh, naval base in Djibouti began. It began as a port infrastructure development project and ultimately morphed into uh, a naval base uh, for China. So During that 20 years where the United States uh, and much of the Western world was focusing on counterinsurgency, the Chinese were expanding uh, economically uh, and using the trade imbalance to bankroll, vast uh, military uh, technological improvements uh, in infrastructure development, and that started to hit uh, critical mass as we entered into 2010 and beyond, and people couldn't help but take notice that hey, all of a sudden, it looks like the Chinese have a presence in Africa, in South America, uh, in other uh, in other regions in the Indo-Pacific, for instance. And this gave clear signals uh, to the global community that clearly China was moving from just being a trading partner. Uh, with everyone to having other ambitions and desires that perhaps went beyond just internal economic improvement.
1: So you know we talked about uh, ambitions. That's the word you used, ambitions. Um, and I know that uh, my limited understanding is that uh, China is communist country, um, and. I guess my understanding of communism is sort of based on Marxism and the Cold War. Soviet Union. Soviet Union, right? Uh, That's you know the American history classes I took as a kid. That's what we talked about. Um, But so for communist China, for them to have ambition, what does that look like? What does their brand of communism look like?
2: Okay, so yeah, that's also a really frequent question that you get out there. And just as the, that, that pivot to Asia and the refocus on China has taken a lot of people by surprise, uh, the notion of China as a communist state really takes a lot of people by surprise. And I think that the, the, the reason for that is, is, is pretty obvious. When you, can, when you consider how most Americans recognize the brand of China, it's from the standpoint of trade. Uh, mm-hmm. You think of microprocessors and all sorts of, yeah. I mean, really, just about anything that you can think of. If you go to your major big big box store, you're going to find uh, c- quite a bit of merchandise there that's been manufactured in China. Uh, same thing. If you go to any department store for you know, for clothing, you're going to see the "Made in China" tag on, on quite a few different articles of clothing. So, when when Americans see that and when Westerners uh, see that and they see the Made in China label, they immediately think trade. And when people think trade, they think commerce, free markets, uh, and capitalism, not communism. So at first blush, it's kind of hard to reconcile China's uh, outsized economic presence and their trade with the rest of the world with, on the other hand, what you were saying, Aaron, the Soviet Union and uh, bread lines. And I mean, I remember I remember this uh, growing up at the height back in the previous era of great power competition with the Soviet Union. I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, and I remember the F-15s. Back then it was F-15s, not F-22s. The F-15s being scrambled uh, from Elmendorf Air Force Base to uh, go up and basically uh, intercept the Russian bombers that were crossing over into U.S. and Alaskan airspace. Uh, they were basically timing how long it would take us to get up there, testing our air defenses and our, you know, radar capabilities. Um, that's kind of your uh, your lawyer's uh, layman's understanding of what what was going on there. But that was the previous um, era of great power competition. That was this. That was the Soviet Union, an adversary who, in in a remarkable contrast to China, did not have, obviously, the economic wherewithal that the Chinese do now. So back to this question, if we think of the Soviet Union and Marxism, And that's our idea, kind of broken down economies uh, that don't have any innovation, no technological development. How do we reconcile Marxism, communism, the Soviet Union with what we see happening in China now, basically neck and neck with the United States, uh, depending on how you you measure the economics on it, um, as one of the most powerful economic countries in the world? I think there... It's important to understand, for a number of reasons, the nature of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, and its role within China. So, uh, to to try and give a, 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 a succinct, right, a succinct explanation of it. Uh, if, you take a look, if you take a look at the political organization of China, uh, you basically can break it down to two entities. You have the PRC, the People's Republic of China, which was proclaimed uh, by Mao Zedong uh, 1947, 1949, somewhere around there. Um, so the country of China. And then you have the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Well, the People's Republic of China is essentially a one-party state and the CCP controls the government. Now, it's an important point to make here because China has over a billion people, but the Chinese Communist Party, depending on the estimates that you read out there, uh, probably not even one-tenth of the population is an actual member of the CCP. Okay, so I've seen estimates of about Seventy million to a hundred million. Uh, I guess depending on how it is that, that you want to define it. Go ahead, Aaron. I was going to say something.
1: How do you define who's like an active party member? I know for us it would be you know, like I'm a registered Republican or I'm a registered Democrat or I vote. Um, how do they How do they measure that?
2: So they actually uh, they actually do have a list um, oh. of those people who are subscribed as being part of the Chinese Communist Party, and I think for our purposes the the point to really underscore is that if if you're someone who really is ultimately going to matter in China, then you have to be a member uh, of the CCP. Mm. And the CCP is ultimately behind all of the efforts. And the best the best illustration that I can actually give of that, and really apropos, uh, considering who we are and our audience, is the military. Uh, By uh, the constitution of the CCP, the People's Liberation Army, or the PLA, so that's the Chinese military, is not technically the military of the People's Republic of China. It is instead the armed wing of the Chinese Communist Party. That's what the CCP says. So the military is ultimately the party's army, not the country's army. Now this, in turn... Takes us to a topic that we're hearing about quite a bit uh, in the news these days: Taiwan. So, if we take just a quick, really brief sketch here of Chinese history, communist revolution in China, nineteen forties, Mao Zedong ultimately comes to power, um, winds up ejecting uh, the nationalists under leader by the name of Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang Kai-shek flees to uh, flees, excuse me, to uh, what had formerly been. A Portuguese uh, uh, Portuguese colony uh, that the Portuguese called the island of Formosa, which today we call Taiwan. So Chiang Kai-shek flees uh, Mao Zedong and the Communist Revolution because he's lost essentially, uh, and establishes what he calls the Republic of China. Now I don't know if you, when I was growing up, I recall seeing labels on uh products uh that had been imported to the united states and it would say made in taiwan comma roc as in republic of china and that's because chiang kai-shek held out to the world that the real china was located in taiwan because they were the real chinese people whereas uh whereas uh, uh mao zedong uh, as the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party, was an insurgent who had overthrown the lawful government of China. So that's, uh, that's, what, that's what's going on there with Taiwan and why we can talk about that more perhaps uh, during our discussion today. But one reason why the question of Taiwan is so controversial. But to get back to, because I see you're her here for another point, Erin, to just, I guess, get to the bottom line there on the Chinese Communist Party and to what degree is it communist. It's, I, I'd say that you could, you could probably pin down at least these two points on it. Um, number one, current uh, leader of China, uh, Xi Jinping, so, or Chairman uh, Xi, as he's affectionately referred to uh, in much of the popular media, um, he has repeatedly in his public declarations made a point of emphasizing Marxist-Leninist ideology. Uh, One of the phrases that you hear over and over again is, quote-unquote, socialism with Chinese characteristics. But he has made clear that the CCP is the ultimate authority in China, and he invokes that ideology repeatedly, more so than any other leader uh, in China since the death of Mao. Uh, you would really have to go back to Mao, in fact, to find someone who's emphasized communist ideology as much as Z, uh, And that has manifested itself in an expanding centralization of the state. When China first entered the WTO in the early 2000s, it really seems as though there was much more Room for personal initiative in China when it came to the development of many of those corporations uh, there that became uh, became the, the components of China of China's incredible export export machine export juggernaut. Um, but as time has gone on, and especially beginning with Xi in two ta- thousand and twelve. Uh, when he became the chairman of the, of the CCP, he has worked to steadily centralize that influence and, ex- and, and make sure that the CCP has a hand uh, in just about anything that matters that's taking place in China. And that ranges any, from anywhere from ensuring <clears throat> that the major, the major export corporations of China have CCP membership on their boards, ensuring that there are CCP committees that are active, Um, in those uh, organizations and also just in his public proclamations uh, always in uh, or relentlessly invoking Marxism, Leninism, and the importance of having an all-powerful centralized state. So you do have this kind of uneasy tension that's clearly moving in a much more authoritarian direction and has over the last 20 years, whereby on the one hand it's these free market exports that are bankrolling the machine. But on the other hand, unlike in Western countries, it's being directed uh, by uh, by the most powerful organs within the party.
1: I guess my understanding of China, the way it's set up now, is that uh, Chairman Xi, that the, the rule over there is pretty authoritarian, that there's been a lot of personal gain by him and by the people loyal to him, um, and that, this is not necessarily the uh, communism dream, right? Of that—that uh, that I think you know, maybe Marx envisioned that there really is still a lot of power and economic inequality. Uh, how does he? How is he getting around that? Like, what is he doing to convince people to still be part of this plan?
2: Sure. So, and this—this, in, this in fact, is really um, in my mind one one of the things I want to make sure we talk about here uh, is some of the vulnerabilities. Uh, of communist China because one, I think, unfortunate aspect of all of the emphasis, you could even say maybe obsession sometimes, um, with great power competition is that we tend to get in this mindset uh, of the inevitability of uh, CCP triumph, uh, or Chinese triumph, and that there's the, the Chinese are going to overtake us, there's nothing that we can do to stop it. Uh, it, has inexorable momentum behind it, and we're too far behind, there's nothing that we can do. Well, uh, there's a great study that was put out um, uh, at the, uh, I believe it's the Baker Institute at uh, Rice University. This is just a few months back. Uh, and it's entitled uh, Hold the Line. And it presents this strategy. I think Hold the Line through 20. Uh, I'm probably off on the dates, or I want to say it was like Hold the Line through tw- 2035. Okay. Yeah, it's the Hold the Line through 2035. Uh, and in there, uh, two, two uh, experts on foreign policy with China point out that, in fact, Chairman Ji has something of, a, of an unstable compromise that's in play with the Chinese people. And that essentially is that the Chinese Communist Party, uh, insular as it is, relative to the entire population, since it's it's you know, quite likely you know, less than 10% of the actual Chinese population, that they can continue, the CCP Politburo, the primary figureheads leadership within the CCP, they can continue to enrich themselves and they can continue to exercise all of the influence um, over over state control. However, they can only retain those positions of power as long as the Chinese middle class continues to grow and prosper. So the bottom line is that as soon as the economic growth begins to falter, then the tacit deal that the Chinese public has with the CCP uh, starts to break down. And that's why economic growth has been, and uh, ensuring the success of Chinese export engine has been of paramount importance uh, to the leadership of the CCP regime. Because once that economic growth starts to slow down, people begin to question whether uh, their stated reason for why they should be in power, which is that they've been able to successfully direct one of the... What, I mean, one of the greatest economic com- comebacks in, in world history, when you consider the extent of, of economic development in China over the last two decades, um, once that growth begins to falter, people start to question whether, um, whether the people who are running the regime um, <clears throat> have the credibility that they claim um, that they should have. Um, so uh, it's, it's absolutely vital to the CCP that economic growth continue uh, and if it were to if it were to uh, falter in any way, then their stature could be substantially diminished, and arguably lead to the downfall of the entire regime. And that's something that that's that's pointed out uh, in that strategy document that I just mentioned um, from Rice University.
1: What is the the military threat here? You know, it's it seems like if it would were just a matter of China improving its economy, improving the lives of its people, we probably wouldn't be concerned about that. And, you know, obviously, the fact that they're communist plays a big role there, right? They're not a free country. They're not a democratic country. Um, but what is the, the military concern for us?
2: For sure. Yeah. And this is another area where uh, you need to have some clear eyed uh, clear-eyed realism and recognize the threat for what it is, but on the other hand, you don't want to succumb to alarmism. So, for instance, uh, there's been a lot of talk recently about how uh, China has eclipsed the United States in terms of the number of vessels that they have in their navy. So they now literally have a larger navy <clears throat> in terms of actual in terms of actual ships um, within their arsenal as compared to the United States. Another issue altogether of course, is the quality of what they have. Uh, I think that they're up to, don't quote, don't, well, you won't be quoting me on this, right? <laughs> two, uh, I think they're up to two carriers, aircraft carriers now, um, but still overall lacking, you know, what they call a blue water navy, right? So a global reach navy. Um, as far as I know, uh, on the submarine front, still really in, in the stages of rudimentary development, uh, nothing akin to what the United States has uh, with nuclear powered, uh, nuclear weaponized submarines, which are, of course, an you know, indispensable component of our nuclear uh, triad. So on the one hand, their, their technological capabilities have improved dramatically, and they certainly have, in terms of the size um, of, uh, of what they count within their arsenal, it has expanded tremendously over the last 20 years. Uh, also, in the cyber realm You'll see uh, the commentators uh, kind of jostling back and forth on this one as to whether or not uh, China has the uh, the upper hand uh, with us uh, on us when it comes to cyber capabilities. And I'm I'm not a cyber expert, uh, but what of what I've read, I mean, you, you certainly get a sense that if if we haven't been overtaken by China in that realm, uh, then they're certainly extremely competitive in that realm. Um, another issue that's received a lot of attention uh, recently has been in the area. Of hypersonic uh, weapons. So, for instance, if you were to take uh, if you were to take a look at America's military return, uh, deterrent, I just mentioned the nuclear triad. So we have the nuclear submarines, uh, we have uh, the ability to uh, the ability to launch uh, weapons uh, with our ICBN capability, um, and then we also have the ability uh, to bomb right, with our B-1s, our B-52s. So it's that threefold triad, the subs, the ICBMs, and the bombers. So the Chinese answer to being able to circumvent that is hypersonic weapons. So the idea with hypersonic is that you use a rocket uh, to launch uh, some type of vehicle, a hypersonic vehicle, so many times the speed of sound, uh, into a uh, low-earth orbit. And then from there... Uh, from that vehicle, have it maneuver down to Earth, uh, and either have that vehicle launch a weapon, or the vehicle itself is the nuclear weapon. Now, why this, is a, why this is potentially a game changer is that if you look at the traditional ICBM threat, so for instance, from the Soviet Union uh, uh, in the nuclear arms race that developed during the Cold War, ICBMs uh, have a parabolic trajectory, so they go up, they're launched from a specific location, they can be tracked from space, and you can predict where they're going to go based on their trajectory, and you know roughly at the speed they're traveling, and you can, you can predict roughly when it is that they're going to impact. With hypersonic vehicles, once it goes into low Earth, uh, low earth orbit, you don't have something that's predictable, so you're not exactly sure because it's maneuverable. You're not sure where it's going to go, uh, and it's traveling at a uh, at a speed and in such a way that it's elusive of radar. Uh, so it basically uh, introduces an element of surprise uh, into uh, into the nuclear arms race. Uh, in other words, it's a way of bypassing the predictability of ICBMs. Well. That's, uh, that's a major concern when it comes to nuclear deterrence because the whole notion of nuclear deterrence is that if your enemy launching ICBMs at you, uh, they have a limited number, uh, they're going to land in certain places, and while you're watching uh, the approach of these ICBMs, you're going to be able to launch a retaliatory attack before they've destroyed your capability. retaliate Um, with hypersonics you're not necessarily aware uh, that that attack's happening Uh, so uh, this this is something that garnered a lot of concern in the popular press chairman of the joint chiefs of staff uh talked about it as well with the service secretaries i think it's it's important to uh, to look on the other hand um that nonetheless the united states still does retain an element of surprise with nuclear submarines for instance uh because the nuclear submarines Uh, in our Navy, uh, very difficult to track them. And so of course they still have a first strike uh, capability that's very difficult to detect. So I guess the the bottom line is that there's great reason uh, to be concerned with the nature of the People's Liberation Army uh, and the threat that it poses. They've dramatically improved their technology over the last two decades. Uh, They've uh, expanded the the number of assets uh, that they can utilize. Uh, and on the cyber front, they're extremely uh, capable. We use the phrase near-peer. Uh, they may be beyond that uh, at this stage. So the threats are real, but on the other hand, there's still a lot of catch-up that they have to do uh, when it comes to Blue Water Navy uh, and when it comes to matching us on a number of other fronts.
1: So aside from military concerns, um what, what are the other ways that we are concerned with China? Because I know that military is just one of several things.
2: Sure. Um, a, couple of, uh, a couple of points on that. Um, so uh, one uh, would be uh, industrial espionage. So there's been uh, quite a bit of attention that's focused lately on what's referred to as a forced technology transfer. Uh, in fact, the Department of Justice uh, set up a... Um, a program its received a bit of criticism lately, maybe more on that later, uh, but DOJ set up something called the China Initiative, and really one of the primary purposes of it is to try and prosecute uh, people working in the United States for stealing, uh, stealing uh, trade secrets, uh, industrial secrets, for instance. But here's how it usually, uh, usually plays out. Uh, the Chinese market is vast. It's lucrative. We've talked about it here. Over a billion people. Uh, so naturally, if you can get something over there um, that, uh, that, that the regime will allow into the market, then you stand to have uh, almost uh, an inexhaustible demand uh, for, w- for whatever it is that you're selling. Um, so what's happened is that a lot of Western companies and a lot of American companies, uh, in the rush to try and uh, try and get a foothold in the Chinese economy, have essentially been, Uh, they've essentially been coerced into having to hand over uh, their trade secrets uh, in exchange for being given access to the Chinese market. So as a condition uh, for being allowed to sell whatever or market whatever in China, uh, and this can take a number of forms, uh, perhaps it is that the company has to they have to do business uh, with, certain, with certain designated entities in China, and those entities happen to be controlled by the CCP, and everything that you pass on to them is going to go back to the CCP. In other instances, uh, it's just been outright theft. Um, you, happen, uh, you happen to have satellite offices uh, over in China, and it turns out uh, that your, your entire information stream uh, over the Internet is being hacked, uh, and all of the trade secrets uh, uh, and copyrights that you have uh, are being pilfered uh, unbeknownst to you. Um, so forced technology, and this, this has not just been an issue for the United States. This has been an, uh, an issue... Uh, That has been problematic uh, for many companies in in Western Europe and Australia as well. Uh, That's been one uh, great cause of concern. There have been a number of reports that have come out uh, recently de- detailing far more far more particulars than what I just gave right now, uh, how it is that that forced technology transfer and industrial espionage is taking place. And, and DOJ, through the China Initiative, has prosecuted dozens and dozens of people uh, over the last uh, few years operating within the United States who have been uh, involved in, in various forms of uh, industrial espionage. Uh, so that's, that would be one example. Um, Another uh, would be just influence uh, operations. Um, Chairman Xi, uh, when he came in in 2012, really, uh, really honed in on what uh, what we all call now soft power. Uh, He even has a phrase for this. He calls it winning without fighting. Um, So the idea here is to influence global audiences in a way that positively reflects uh, on the Chinese regime uh, without having to get overtly uh, belligerent about it. A couple of brief examples uh, that I could bring up, and it's, um, I guess, before I go into those, I should point out, uh, Xi Jinping, Chairman Xi, worked uh, with an organization – this is earlier on in his career uh, called the United Front Work Department. Um, this is uh, this is what uh, Xi refers to as quote his magic weapon, uh, end quote, harkening uh, back to a phrase that Mao used uh, decades earlier. Mao himself had lifted the United Front Work Department from the Soviet uh, version; he copied it directly over from the Soviets. Um, United United Front Work Department uh, is basically an influence uh, operation organization. Originally just had a domestic purpose to influence domestic audiences and exercise uh, narrative control, uh, if you will, over the domestic populace, but it now operates on a global level. Some of the most notorious examples uh, come out of Australia. Um, uh, The Australians uh, produced a report, I want to say was about Uh, It's probably two years or so ago now uh, detailing infiltration of the United Front Work Department into uh, multiple sectors within Australia uh, from uh, the political realm. Uh, to industry and to academia. Uh, and that's probably a good segue to, to provide an example of some of these influence ops. So uh, for those of you uh, who have gone to college in the United States, uh, when strolling across your campus, you may have, you may have come across uh, a building that's called a Confucius Institute. Uh, Confucius institutes are, are placed uh, uh, throughout uh, academia in the United States. In fact, I happened to notice the other day, I was, uh, I was just driving, uh, driving through the Auburn University at Montgomery campus, and there's a Confucius Institute uh, located there. Um, Confucius Institutes, uh, and I don't know the status of that particular one because uh, just full, you know, full, full disclosure on this, quite a few of them uh, have shut down uh, over the last year or two, so I don't know the status as to that one. But the, at any rate, the, the sign in the building was still there when I drove through. So Confucius Institutes were, were marketed... Um, this was uh, this is something that had a heavy influence from the United Front Work Department. They were basically uh, marketed along the lines of the foreign institutes of other countries. So when they were launched, they were, uh, they were basically advertised as being like a German Goethe Institute. Um, most of Spain has a Cervantes Institute. Uh, I, I, would, I would presume that quite a few countries in Europe—they have their own. They're basically just um, institutes that are placed in foreign countries uh, as a way of showcasing, you know, the culture of their country, their language. You can pick up uh, lang- you know, language lessons at them, for instance. Um, they'll have classes maybe on the cuisine from that country. It's basically a way for uh, for countries to be able to exhibit. Uh, exhibit their, their their cultural background, their history, uh, their gastronomy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, Confucius Institutes uh, were advertised on that particular model, uh, but it turned out. Um, And there have been a a number of studies that have been devoted to this recently uh, that there were some more sinister goings on uh, at Confucius Institutes, uh, in particular at some of the locations in the United States. So uh, what was discovered was that in many cases, um, students uh, who were attending uh, these institutes, uh, first off, uh, they were being fed propaganda uh, that was designed um, by instructors who were handpicked. Uh, By the CCP to be delivering the message that they were delivering typically in the arrangements that the Confucius Institutes will set up with the host university, the host university doesn't have any say over who's teaching at the Confucius Institute and, and these arrangements, by the way, you know, they vary tremendously. Um, at some universities you can, get univer- you can get university credit when you're attending your university for taking classes at the Confucius Institute. Sometimes you don't get credit, it's just kind of like more of a, uh, an opportunity to survey the classes by, by attending the university. It, it really varies tremendously from, from school to school. But in any event, um, they saw, number one, uh, that the Confucius Institutes were being used as a means of spreading propaganda from the CCP. But then even beyond that, um, that frequently what was happening um, is that Chinese students who were present at Confucius Institutes were being instructed behind the scenes uh, that they were to bring up certain cl- certain topics during class discussions. and. Additionally, um, that they were uh, being coerced into monitoring the discussion in the classroom and then reporting back to operatives the discussion that was taking place or perhaps even reporting on other Chinese students who were present who perhaps uh, were making comments that didn't shed the CCP in a favorable light, right? So maybe you had uh, a Chinese student who was here on a student visa and he was talking about the situation in Hong Kong. Um, where he was talking about uh, the Uyghurs, for instance. And, uh, yeah, we, you know, I don't even know that we'll, we'll have a chance to get to it, right, with everything that we're discussing today. But concentration camps, essentially, that are present <coughs> um, uh, all throughout northeastern China in the Xinjiang, uh, Xinjiang province, uh, where Uyghurs are being systematically persecuted. Um, so if perhaps someone wasn't towing the party line on that, Um, then they'd be informed upon, and then what do you know? uh, All of a sudden, uh, they're being quickly recalled back to China, or they're not being given an opportunity to come back to the United States. So this would be, the Confucius Institutes would just be one example uh, of United Front Work Department influence operation and winning without fighting in using soft power. So the idea here, and this is not uh, I should underscore this. These are not really intelligence operations per se. Um, while there are links uh, between uh, some people within the UFD, uh, UFWD uh, and Chinese intelligence apparatus, for the most part, it's not really so. It's really more a question, a, a question of just psyops, psycho- psychological operations, influence operations. Uh, and some of this might get back to the intelligence service Maybe it doesn't. Uh, those those links, some of those links have been documented, but it's really just more an in influence op. Um, there are lots of, uh, I've spent a bit of time on the Confucius Institutes because that's, I just mention it because that's probably one of the more uh, more prominent examples that people might be familiar with from just uh, being on a U.S. campus or or on uh, some other western campus. Uh, But there are other examples uh, that have been detailed pretty exhaustively. Um, uh, That report that I mentioned uh, from Australia from, um, I think, roughly two years ago uh, catalogs uh, infiltration of UFD operatives uh, who start to make contacts with businessmen in Australia Uh, make contacts with political figures and before you know it and a lot of times it's really just very basic uh, appeals to vanity. Um, someone from the United Front Work Department, he might be an operative out of, an, uh, out of a consulate, out of a Chinese consulate, for instance, in Australia. Um, he may approach a political figure there, uh, and he may say, hey, you, you, know, you really seem to have a keen understanding of China and our perspective and where you're coming from. Uh, we'd like to invite you over to China so that you can see a tour of, uh, of our developments and, and what we're doing, um, and this will really facilitate cross-cultural exchange. Um, and then you can come back uh, and you can tell your fellow countrymen what's really going on in China. Uh, and before you know, before you know it, um, a lot of these individuals who, who don't have malign intentions at all wind up parroting the CCP's line. And spinning a favorable narrative uh, for the Chinese Communist Party without even realizing uh, that they've been targeted uh, for the specific purpose of being able to weave a favorable narrative uh, for for the CCP. Um, uh, one of the uh, one of the textbooks that I uh, not textbooks, uh, excuse me. Uh, book that was published just last year. Uh, it's called Hidden Hand Written. Um, I think one of the individuals is uh, is Australian. Um, and it extensively uh, catalogs a lot of these United Front Work Department influence operations and furnishes all sorts of illustrations of Circumstances to include with some uh, with some very uh, high-powered, um, high-profile personalities who were basically co-opted by the Chinese regime and didn't even realize that they were just being used as an instrument of spreading CCP propaganda. But I guess we could we could finish this off by saying that it's really a, a it's it's an elaborately um, the influence operations coming uh, out of the CCP are elaborately uh, devised, uh, and they are meant to look innocuous uh, but serve ultimately a really powerful purpose. And going back to the, one of the questions that you asked at the beginning, Aaron, you know, why is it that all of a sudden we're paying attention to this, uh, paying attention to the, to the CCP threat? One of the reasons is that a lot—it's just at this point now, here within the last few years—that uh, that various Western intelligence services and state departments have started to unravel what's been going on, and it's starting to come to to light now.
1: All right, sir. Thank you so much. It's so interesting because I—I really do feel like you know we were talking about this before. I check the news every morning you know, tons of domestic stuff, a little bit of BBC, British European stuff. And every once in a while, you know, a little point here and there about China. But, you know, it's just fascinating to know that all this stuff has been going on for decades. And I think it, I mean, I think it maybe goes to show how, you know, careful and insidious it really was that it's not even something that we were really aware was even happening until recently. And certainly, I would say probably most of the regular American population is still not really tracking or aware of. Uh, so super fascinating. Um, thank you for coming you. and no. chatting with us about this today. Yeah. Uh, super fascinating. We'll have to have you come back and get into more detail about some of the stuff, especially I'm super interested in this uh, psychological operations type stuff. Um, we didn't have a chance to even talk about the what I think is one of the, the big kind of almost embarrassing pieces of this right which is the um the desire to to be competitive in the marketplace and the lure of the dollar that we see in you know the chinese population and that gets into you know movies being produced and marketed there. The whole John Cena thing.
2: Yes, you know, absolutely. It yeah. feels
1: it's an exploitation of something I think that we are very vulnerable to.
2: Absolutely, we didn't even get into co-opting Hollywood and uh, and 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 some of the efforts. Um, some of the efforts that, that have paid enormous, uh, enormous fruit uh, within, you know, with, within Western uh, movie production studios uh, who have almost reached a point now where implicitly they know what messages will and will not get through, um, will, will and will not get through censors uh, uh, over in China and begin to self-censor Uh, If you will, there's a report also uh, out there from Pen America that came out recently that talks about self-censorship, that it's almost this – it's it's really kind of this self-fulfilling feedback loop whereby – American movie studios know that there are certain topics that they have to avoid or certain topics that have to be presented in a certain way in order for them to gain access to the, to the Chinese market. The last I saw, and I know, Aaron, because I could go on on this forever, I believe that as it stands right now, they're, uh, when it comes to the most lucrative, they have different tiers uh, of uh, profit, profit-sharing. Uh, that are associated with films that are foreign, that is, you know, Western films that are allowed to be shown in China. And in order to qualify for one of the 34 films uh, that are allowed to be shown in China by the regime, uh, those, of course, are, gonna, uh, are going to receive the most scrutiny of all uh, and there are instances of uh, essentially uh, Western movie studios uh, directly interfacing with the Chinese censors to try and hash out what is and what is not acceptable in order to qualify uh, for presentation in China and meet the quote of one of those 34 films. So it, it's really a, it's really a fascinating topic and uh, absolutely getting finally getting uh, a bit of the attention that it deserves uh, as uh, as we start to pay attention.
1: Great. Thank you, sir. Uh, And again, thank you so much for sitting down and talking about this with us today.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General School podcast. One of the best ways you can support this publication is by following or subscribing the show and leaving us a rating. You can find this episode, transcription, and show notes at www.jagreporter.af.mil slash podcasts we welcome your feedback. Nothing from this show should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issues. Nothing in this show is endorsed by the federal government, the Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of its guests and hosts.